Okay, now it's time. Welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Father Charlie Gordon, and Professor Karen Eifler and I are the co-directors of the Garaventa Center for Catholic Intellectual Life and American Culture at the University of Portland, and we're your hosts for uh, the evening, which kind of feels like a first event for us of the year. Now, I know many of you were at the ZOM lecture on 9-11, uh, on a truly extraordinary occasion for the university with Marilyn Robinson. But this is uh, our first event in what is our customary space uh, so here at the university. So it's uh, wonderful to see you all uh, gathered here. Um, first off, I, I would like to offer a couple of welcomes. We are honored to have with us this evening um, the, the president of the University of Portland, uh, Father Mark Poorman, and the provost of the, of the university, uh, Professor uh, Tom Green. So let's, let's welcome them. You know the drill. Many of you know the drill. We've, we've got a few housekeeping items that we do before anything else. And, and the first is the, is the customary PDUs announcement. So uh, you could probably recite this along with me, some of you. But if you are a K through 12 teacher of any description and you would like free PDUs, professional development units, for this or any other Garaventa Center event, please sign the sheet that you can find on the table on the, on the side by the wall, and we'll get those off to you uh, in the morning. This is by special arrangement with the University of Portland's School of Education. The other thing that we'd like to do is uh, do a quick coming attractions. Uh, as usual, we've got an extraordinary schedule of events coming up. Uh, so I just mentioned a couple of them. I saw uh, one or two uh, flyers from our uh, Halloween lecture, which is a uh, Beckman Humor Initiative lecture uh, called The Biology of Zombies and Other Parasitic Tales. Um, so that's going to be fascinating. It's about um, parasites that, that, that essentially turn insects into zombies, that they, they, they can control their minds. Um, very appropriate uh, for that particular season. Um, another thing, uh, striking a different note, we're always striking different notes, aren't, aren't we, is uh, Pray to Love, the Visitation Nuns of uh, Annecy, France, when we have uh, the photographer and painter Anne Getz telling the story behind her most recent work, depicting the lives of the Visitation Sisters uh, in Annecy in France. So that's just a, just a, a taste of the, of the two of the events that we've got coming up this semester. Uh, when you pick up a copy of our calendar, look at both sides, because spring already is, is on the other side. Um, so uh, lots of extraordinary things coming up. The cross of Jesus Christ is an extraordinarily powerful symbol. Um, traditionally, Martyrs, on the occasion of their martyrdom, were given a cross to hold as they died. Uh, traditionally, uh, Christians who were dying were shown a cross. A cross was held up before their failing eyes so that the cross of our Lord would be literally um, the last thing that they would see. And in my um, 30 years or more of priesthood, I've only gradually come to an ever-increasing awareness of the extraordinary power of, of that symbol in prayer and in meditation, uh, just, to, just to sit and gaze upon the cross. Um, it it's, can be a source of enormous uh, consolation. Uh, of peace, of, of, of inspiration. Uh, so, um, for all Christians, I imagine, it's always 
it's always uh, a bit risky to say all of anything, but I think for all Christians, the, the cross is, is a powerful uh, symbol. But the University of Portland is founded by the Congregation of Holy Cross. And, and most of us wear around our necks these symbols of a cross and anchor. Anchors, which says that the cross is our only hope. That's our motto, the cross is our only hope. So the cross has a, a particular uh, importance and role for the community that, uh, that, that sort of gave birth to the University of Portland. Uh, and I know that that, that that motto sounds a little bit sad sometimes on, on first hearing you think, it's like, oh, we've lost all our other hopes and all we've got left is this one, one hope. But, that, but that's not what the Latin means. That's not the meaning of it. The meaning of it that doesn't translate particularly well into English is the cross is our one hope in the sense that it is such a hope and a hope of so much hopiness that all those other hopes hardly even qualify as hopes in comparison. So that's, that's, that's what this uh, little symbol uh, means. And of course, we're thinking a lot about crosses and crucifix these days because of the new Dundon uh, Burkholt building that is being dedicated tomorrow. Some of you have already had classes there and have seen that, that each of the classrooms has a uh, rather extraordinary crucifix uh, from one of the places associated with the university and its religious community. One of the places where our students study and our, our, our priests and religious work and where our, our professors have, have, have taught and, and researched. And um, actually that was, you know, the Garaventa Center had a hand in that one too, uh, through, through Dr. Eifler, who had the inspiration, and, and uh, through the extraordinary generosity of so many members of our community who, uh, you know, weren't being paid to do this, they brought home those crucifixes from places where they had been studying and working because they wanted to make that contribution to, uh, to, to our community. And, uh, and so this talk is actually in association with that project and in association with the dedication of, of, of the new building. And um, our, our speaker this evening uh, Professor uh, Robin Jensen is a like really distinguished speaker, <laughs> like giving plenary addresses at conferences at Oxford University distinguished, you know, so, um, and she's a, 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 I'll stick with the word distinguished because it fits, a distinguished uh, historian and theologian and historian of art from the University of Notre Dame. And we are so blessed to have her with us this evening. So you can see the topic right up here, the Holy Cross symbol of victory and sign of salvation. So let's welcome our speaker, Robin Jensen. It's really an honor to be here and uh, from another congregation of Holy Cross. I've learned to say Holy Cross and not the Holy Cross. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for your welcome and I'm really honored to see you all. Now, please tell me if I'm not loud enough. I will do my best. Is this mic on? Is it okay. And make sure I have, I have a bit of a cold, so if I might have to stop for water. An image of Christ crucified and dying. This is so ubiquitous in Christian art that it seems impossible, perhaps, 
that it was not always so. Yet art historians have been unable to identify an explicitly Christian crucifix prior to the fourth or early fifth century, and then only a few rare examples survive that predate the sixth century. Perhaps surprisingly, even a plain Christian cross without a corpus or body is virtually missing in Christian art much before the middle of the fourth century. When Christian artists, for at least a century before that, created uh, depictions of Jesus performing all kinds of other deeds, like this, this is a catacomb painting from Rome, which showed Jesus performing uh, healing of the sick, raising of the dead, or changing water to wine, or multiplying loaves and fishes, or being baptized by John, we, that cannot, we cannot find amidst any of these any actual visual references to his death. So, and they don't survive among examples of early Christian art from the second or third or even fourth century. The missing crucifix has led some scholars to suggest that first or second or third century Christians did not actually focus upon the manner purpose, or meaning of the events on Golgotha. Some argue instead of Christ's suffering and death, early Christians emphasized Christ's message of love and justice and a promised paradise. Maybe some of you know the authors I mean. In this view, although Jesus' crucifixion undoubtedly took place, it was an historical event, it was simply not a central element of the divine plan. Such, art, such authors argue that the cross or crucifix's eventual emergence in the first Christian, under the first Christian Roman emperor, Constantine, arguably adopted it for political propagandistic purposes. Rather than choosing an instrument of violence or a symbol of human brutality to represent the faith, these scholars believe that earlier Christians preferred figures of the shepherd, the fish, or the dove, or an olive branch, because these conveyed the original values, original Christian values of compassion and peace. And here's an example. <clears throat> Another one. I'm, tonight, I'm not going to try to explain why we don't have an early image of the crucifix, or I might try, but quickly, as an art historian who works also with Christian texts and material culture, I have no doubt that ancient Christians regarded the cross and Christ's crucifixion as key moments in salvation history. Its scandalous nature did not mean that it was better left unmentioned and undepicted. The passion narratives are central to the canonical gospels. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, Peter proclaims Christ's crucifixion to the Jerusalem community. Paul's letters, which most New Testament scholars regard as the earliest writings we possess, offer unambiguous testimony to the centrality of the crucifixion in nascent Christian theology. Consider Paul's words. Yeah. Oh no, here we are. Um, consider Paul's words in the first epistle to the Corinthians. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And from the earliest days, the physical object of the cross itself became a signifier of the whole passion narrative. It even took even if it took a little bit of time before it showed up in visual art. So here's a couple of other texts that you probably are very familiar with. But if you notice, the cross is simply very present in the teaching and writings of Paul. What is more, before we have actual crosses or crucifixes, Christian teachers readily identified witnesses to the cross in all kinds of Old Testament figures. Moses' staff, Isaac's wood, or Elijah's 
um, acts and claimed that the cross could be perceived everywhere in everyday objects throughout the world, in anchors, like, like our Holy Cross anchor, ships, masts, plows, all sorts of things. Um, and here we have an example of a text from an author named Justin Martyr, who just, we have a number of texts like this. The cross is visible, for the sea is not traversed except the trophy with which is called a sail is safe in the ship. The earth is not plowed without it. Diggers and mechanics do not do work except that this have this shape. So even if we don't have an actual cross, we have all sorts of authors arguing that the cross is visible everywhere in the world. Of course, you know, you think about the cross, it's really just a very simple symbol, the intersection of a horizontal and vertical line. So you might have something like this, an early Christian epitaphs, which could be a reference to the cross, or this, which is a ship smashed. What is more, I say, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm having a hard time reading because it's a little dark here. Um, so these perspectives recognize this cross signs, realize that they testify to the truth of the Christian message, a message that I argue was inescapably grounded in the event of Christ's crucifixion. Now, so you have to trust me. We have extensive evidence that early Christians went about explaining, defending, and even proclaiming the crucifixion. We even have reference to pagans mocking Christians for worshiping crosses. Despite this, only a handful of unmistakable Christian crosses survive in the material record from the first three and a half centuries. These rare examples include handwritten figures that may be some type of Christian cross sign. In a papyrus, we have what we call a tau row sign, which may look a little like a head on a cross, and it's part of the word in Greek for, st for cross, staros. We have some ambiguous marks, like this, that might or might not be crosses on some Jewish burial boxes. And there are some scholars that really do believe these are crosses. I'm not so easily convinced. They could just be Mason's marks, this side up sort of thing. We have a controversial Christian graffito uh, in which somebody is mocking Christians for worshiping a crucified donkey head, perhaps, a donkey god. And a few gems, well, what happened here? of various dates, various early dates. They might be third century, they might be fourth. We don't really know. Controversial. But these almost are the exceptions that prove the rule. None occur among the abundant imagery of early Christian catacomb paintings or sarcophagus reliefs or in any known architectural setting like a church. Then, almost suddenly, in the mid-fourth century, an unambiguous Christian cross begins to appear. Oh, there's one of the gems. I'm sorry. I can say more about this. I'm going to go past it now. This is a little odd. We don't actually know if this is even a Christian gem exactly. This is what I'm talking about. This is an unambiguous Christian cross because Jesus is holding it, right? We have Jesus here with Peter and Paul standing on the rock of Eden. There's some rivers flowing out of it. And he's holding this, and it's a very slender scepter cross covered with gems. It becomes incorporated in time into another symbol that we sometimes call a Christogram. The monogram that is made up of the first two letters of the title Christ, Chi and Rho. So that looks to us sometimes like a P and an X, right? So it's the chi and the rho inter, inter, intersected, which is the word for the monogram for Christ. This is often set up in Christian iconography on this cross-like structure with birds sitting on the arms of the cross pecking at little berries in the wreath and often ribbons coming down. You can see just the tails of the ribbons here. The two, perhaps, Roman soldiers at the base of the cross in the crucifixion story. Perhaps this is the one that is going to testify to this is truly the Son of God. An interesting image. 
Without question, this Cairo or Christogram symbol was first associated with the Emperor Constantine. All right? Some of you may have seen that this is in the, in, near the Sistine Chapel here. Um, so we have the Emperor Constantine. He didn't look like this, <laughs> but we have him here seeing what is the elevation of the cross, this kind of wonderful image of the cross that we might think of, um, which is not exactly what he saw in the sky. But if you remember the story, you can just see the little bit of the Greek then. Um, in this sign, you shall be the conqueror, right? So the Emperor Constantine around 314 had this vision of this sign in the sky, and it led him to victory over his human enemy at the Milvian Bridge in Rome. That victory seems to have prompted the emperor's conversion to, if we believe this, some people doubt it, and patronage of, at least that's true, of the Christian faith. With whether we judge this conversion to be genuine or simply opportunistic, both the Christogram and a simple cross start to turn up in varieties of contexts that were clearly imperial and specifically military. Here are some coins of the emperor's uh, family, his sons, and you can see here a soldier holding a banner with the Cairo on it as up there as well. According to Constantine's official biographer, Eusebius of Caesarea, the first monumental cross adorned the entrance to the emperor's palace in his new capital at Constantinople. It was described as a large, gilded, and gem-studded object. Constantine is said to have regarded this cross as his personal pr protective emblem. Eusebius also described a, a, a statue of Constantine, which was set up in Rome, that showed the emperor brandishing a cross in place of a scepter. And if you could go to the Lateran Palace in Rome, a Lateran Basilica in Rome today, this is on the, you might not see this necessarily, it's sort of off to the left, it's in the entrance porch uh, to the basilica. And it's probably the very statue that Eusebius was describing, only the cross is missing. So you have to imagine this is the Emperor Constantine holding up a cross. Um, this was found in the, in the baths of Diocletian, and I think, no, actually, and moved over to this point. Significantly, around the same time, a cross then begins to appear in Christian art as Christ's staff or scepter, as we've just seen here. And it is often embellished with gems, as, as we see here. And there may be another instance of this. This is a, a beautiful green glass pattern that was found in Spain some years ago. And it's a very sim a similar composition. We have Jesus holding a very slender gemmed cross as a kind of scepter. And he's between, again, between Peter and Paul. Um, this slender cross is not an instrument of crucifixion. It would, would not hold Jesus' weight, but the attribute of a divine, not mortal, ruler. And almost simultaneously to this, Christian iconography begins to include episodes from the Passion. And this is the first time we start to see references to Jesus' Passion in Christian art. We don't have them before this. And even in a certain way, we don't even have them yet. Because if you see, over on the far and far left here is Simon carrying Christ's cross. We have a cross. And there is the crowning of thorns in the, in the middle uh, left. And that's actually not a crown of thorns. It's actually a crown of laurel. Uh, so Christ is a victor, not a suffering, uh, mocked Christ. On the two niches on the right is Christ before Pilate. Um, Pilate plays a big role in early Christian art in Rome. He's sort of become Saint Pilate, and that's another book. But anyway, <laughs> in the center you see that image I showed you a little while ago. That may be a reference to the crucifixion, but there's no body on it. It's an empty cross with 
that Constantinian sign of victory. So what I want to say is that here in the center is where birds are perching on the cross's arms. Maybe I have a detail of this again. And the Roman soldiers sit at the base. This is actually the, a, a symbol that indicates the triumph not over a mortal enemy like the emperor's military enemy, but a triumph over death. So we have here then is a kind of image that connects victory with a, with a divine victory. Within a, this, therefore, within a few years of its first appearance as a Constantinian imperial symbol, the Christogram has gained a new meaning. It becomes the Crus Invicta, the unconquered cross of Christ rather than a military emblem. It's exactly the association, however, with Constantine's victory that makes this transition of meaning work, that this sign can take on a new meaning of victory. Um, and it starts to appear all over the place in funerary images. So you can kind of make it out. Uh, is this going to work? Whoop. <laughs> what did I just do? I'll get it for you. <laughs> I want to go back to... Uh, this one. Yep. I think we just hit the... Here we go. Now, if I don't do something wrong, we'll get this. So here we have it with the, with the, with the dove with the olive branch and maybe, I don't know what that is exactly. The woman's name is Vicentia and she's dead and she's living in peace. And over here is a praying figure, again, with this figure and a dove. Now, this is not... And it, People will still want to insist that this is an imperial symbol. I think it's completely transitioned to, an to a symbol of victory over death. And here's another case of this. And you see again the ribbons. And in fact, these are two, two mosaics from Roman North Africa. Very common to see the wreathed Christogram in a funerary setting. And so one, I think, immediately thinks of this text from 1 Corinthians. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Still, having said this, we have no yet direct allusions to, to Jesus' suffering or death in this image. The symbol celebrates his triumph, not his sacrifice, not his bodily pain. Note, his body is still absent. The dearth of explicit crucifixion iconography continues through the 4th century and beyond. It is evident in other passion cycles, such as this uh, a panel from a late 4th century ivory casket, which is now in a museum in Brescia, Italy. The casket's lid displays one of the earliest visual narratives after that sarcophagus I showed you of Christ's passion. Its upper register shows Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane, his arrest, and Peter's denial. The lower register shows Jesus before Herod and then before Pilate, washing his hands. We know the story. We just don't get to see how it ends. It's there in our imaginations, in our knowledge, but we've left it out of the image. Similarly, in a cycle in Ravenna, at San Apollinari Nuovo, we have a whole series of passions images, and we move directly from this one, this is sixth century, to this one. Jesus carries the cross, and the next thing we see is the empty tomb. I know it's a funny looking empty tomb, but trust me, that's an empty tomb with the women coming to it on Easter morning. The intentional exclusion of the crucifixion, to my mind, is plainly evident. So the question remains, if the crucifixion was so important, as I believe, to early Christians, why should it be missing from the visual record? One possibility is that Christians vigorously defended and explained and proclaimed Jesus' crucifixion, but they couldn't make a visual representation of it because it was so profoundly distressing. Pictures are more powerful than words. Ask any photojournalist. 
More pragmatically, since few iconographic precedents could have existed, it may have taken time for artists to develop it. Or they may have lost the ones that existed, particularly if they were constructed of light materials like wood. Or perhaps the, the image of the crucifix presented first fundamental theological problems about how to reconcile the two natures of Christ, both human and divine. While the events of the passion may be described in words without problematically conflating human and divine natures of Christ, a visual image could not show both his eternal and his impassable divinity with his human suffering and death. And this is actually an argument used even into the iconoclastic controversy. But unfortunately, this explanation presumes the content of later theological debate and does not actually account for existing depictions of Jesus as a healer and a teacher and a wonder worker. Finally, some Christians might have worried that the crosses or crucifixes were just too much like the images of pagan gods and might attract idolatrous attention. I don't know if I believe that. I have to admit, I really don't have a definitive answer. Considering the rich textual assessment of the meaning of the cross and the crucifixion, the absence of both cross and crucifix in early Christian iconography still puzzles me. So instead of pressing on for an answer, it may be more productive to seek reasons for why it appears when it does. Arguably, one event, in my mind, is key. That is, the identification of the site of the crucifixion in Jerusalem, prompted by the Emperor Constantine, according to tradition, with his mother, Helena, discovering or inventing the relics of the true cross. And so we have here Helena, Helena at St. Peter's, Helena in a painting, discovering the relics of the true cross. She didn't dig up a big cross. Okay, nobody, all the art shows that, but that was probably not even how it's described in the tradition. But we suddenly have, around 325 to 330, a, a change, the cross becomes everywhere. We, from 325, 330 until the end of the, the beginning of the fifth century, we know relics of the true cross were being distributed across the ancient world and venerated. So almost as soon as the shrine of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem was consecrated, the cult of the cross was established. This naturally would have prompted visual depictions of crucifixion, possibly the very earliest ones appearing in the Basilica in Jerusalem itself. We don't know what was there. We don't know what was put in the apse of the Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem. Nobody describes it. We know something was there, but we don't know what. Whatever the case, a few decades later, some artists carved what is perhaps the oldest surviving and detailed depiction of Jesus' crucifixion on a small ivory casket that's now in the British Museum. Oh, there's another Helena. But I'm going to go to this. So here is a little, this is a, I'm sorry, this is a really illegal photograph. <laughs> I took this with my cell phone. <laughs> um, actually, I took this, don't, don't tell anybody, but it's so fuzzy that I can't even publish it. But I had to show you what this thing looked like, because nobody ever gets to see it assembled. It's usually taken apart and set up in a museum in a case. So this, for one time, the British Museum put this together, and it was in a little darkened room. But that's kind of what we're looking at, and this is the, the four panels that we have of this case, all blown up, so you now have a better sense. It's really about this big. It's not a large object. As a group, the four panels display scenes from Christ's passion, resurrection, and post-resurrection appearances. The panels are of equal size. They're about five, uh, four, four inches by five inches each and very highly crafted in a classicizing style by a very skilled artisan. The iconography of all four is nearly unprecedented, each being one of the earliest, if not the earliest, of its type. They're unique. The first panel conflates several episodes from Jesus' trial, 
On the left, Pilate sits on an elevated throne, turns away to wash his hands. In the center, Jesus carries his cross off to Golgotha, following the direction of a Roman soldier. On the right is a depiction of Peter's denial. Peter warms himself over a charcoal fire while a maidservant points at him accusingly. A rooster, ready to crow, perches above. What? Now what did I do this again? There we go. I'm really very useless with this, obviously. The second panel juxtaposes Christ's crucifixion with Judas's suicide. On the left, Judas hangs from a tree. His money bag lies open on the ground, spilling its contents. And its depiction evokes a slip. Whoop, did I lose it? I got the wrong one. Thank you. Oh. Which one do you want? This one. <laughs> 35. 35. Uh, one more. There you go. Thanks. Okay. I'll try that again. Um, so the money bag here, you see the coins? This, I think, is a reference to a slithering serpent. Okay? That's what I'm trying to show you. Rather, um, the tree on which Judas is hanging draws the viewer's eye over to the crucified Christ over here. Rather than suffering or dead like Judas, who's dead, Jesus is portrayed as vigorously alive, arms outstretched and eyes wide open. He wears only a loincloth, and his body shows no evidence of any physical agony. His expression is almost stoically detached. The nails through his palms are the only indication of his suspension. His feet are neither bound nor nailed, and although the image implies the possibility of a footrest, he appears to be supporting his own weight on the cross. Above his head is Pilate's plaque, a tablet with the abbreviated title Rex Yud for king of the Jews. Mary and John stand as witnesses between the figures of Judas and Jesus, and on the right, a Roman soldier is supposed to be driving his lance into Christ's side. Uh, it's a broken lance, so you can't quite see. It looks like he's threatening him, but he's actually holding a lance. And notice the lance is going into this side, where traditionally it'll go to the other side in, turn, in time. So this is really early. The weapon has lost its end, is still visible in his right hand. Again, unlike the gems discovered above in its details, this crucifixion seems fairly closely follow the biblical narrative. The next panel, this one, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but this shows the two women coming to the empty tomb. And contrary to the biblical description, Jesus' tomb here is a small, elaborate monument with floral columns, a decorated carved double door, and a brick cupola. And what I love about this is actually what's on the door of this is the resurrection of Lazarus. <laughs> nice little detail um, with the sleeping soldiers. The last image shows the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus to his, to his four of his apostles, and of one of them, of course, is Thomas, who puts his finger into Christ's side wound, which again is not the way the biblical story is told. But Jesus stands on a small platform. His raised right hand makes the gesture of an orator. Here he's speaking, indicating that he's delivering his final teachings to his disciples. Here, as in the crucifixion panel, what's really interesting is Jesus has a halo. This is about the time the halo actually makes its appearance in art. Now, clearly, the artisan who, in, who crafted this small object intended to show the full passion cycle. We don't know what was on the lid of this box. Um, might be interesting for us to imagine it. Less than a decade later, this funny little image appears on the doors of the Basilica of Santa Sabina in Rome. We don't know where it originally was on those doors. Nowadays, it's up in the upper left-hand corner, really not in the center, and it's quite small. And there's a lot, there's 23 other wooden panels. So it's just one of a whole number of panels. Um, it's actually a very interesting crucifixion image because Here's Christ, who's bearded, which is unusual for this time. And he's not 
Um, he's wearing a loincloth, and he's with two, the two thieves on either side, not with Mary and John, and this time not with Judas. And we don't actually see a cross at all. I'm not even totally convinced that this is a crucifixion scene. It probably has to be. But the days when I lived in Nashville, Tennessee, I used to say it looks a little bit more like the, the, the line dance at the Crazy Horse Saloon than a crucifixion to me. But anyway, that's the only other example we have from the 5th century. Nothing more now until the 6th. Now, we can reasonably assume that there were others, but we simply don't have them. However, an interesting scrap of literary evidence tells a story about uh, St. Gregory of Tours involving a crucifix around 594. So it's kind of into the late 6th century. This crucifix was probably constructed a little earlier, possibly in the middle of the 5th century, thus hard to know, and seems to have portrayed Jesus wearing only a simple loincloth, like this one, or possibly nothing at all. The crucifixion, we think, was probably actually done in the nude. This apparently caused a scandal and prompted a big miracle. According to the story, a certain priest named Basilius experienced a vision in which the stranger appeared to him complaining. All of you are clothed in garments, but you see me naked. Come now, as quickly as possible, cover me with a curtain. <laughs> the stranger returned two more times to repeat his demand to the baffled priest, finally hitting the priest and threatening to kill him if he didn't obey. And when he finally asked his bishop what he should do, the bishop sensibly ordered that he cover the image of the crucifix with a curtain. The story of this crucifix was may partially explain why all subsequent artists for quite a long time cover Jesus with a purple robe that covers him from shoulders to ankles. One of the oldest of these is a full-page illumination from the Syriac Gospels of Rabelais, dating to around 586, and it comes from the monastery of St. John at Zavra. It's now in a library, though, in Florence. This page is divided into two parts. The upper section, about two-thirds of the space, depicts Christ's crucifixion. And really, this is the, almost the next oldest one, 586, after that ivory, that, I, that ivory box I was showing you. The lower section portrays two different episodes associated with his resurrection, the two women meeting the angel at the empty tomb and then encountering Jesus on their way to Galilee. The crucifixion is depicted in a style that is often described as Eastern or Syrian, I'm not sure about that identification myself. But Christ is fastened to the cross with nails in his palms and both ankles. His hair and beard are long and dark, and his gold halo is banded with blue. He wears a sleeveless purple robe with two vertical gold stripes, obviously a reference to the mockery when the Roman soldiers robed him that way. His eyes are open, but he tilts his head slightly down toward his right shoulder, and his face expresses sorrow or pain. The two crucified thieves, shown slightly behind Christ, wear, don't wear full robes, but they wear knotted skirt-like garments that are called parizomata in Greek. That They cover them from the, the waist to their upper thighs. They're not wearing ordinary loincloths, and that's sort of interesting. They are bound to their crosses by ropes across their chest, which is probably how crucifixions might have actually been done. But like Christ, the two thieves have nails through their palms and ankles. The scene is set against a backdrop of Jerusalem's two hills, and on the far right are Jesus' mother and the beloved disciple. The two other figures, two other figures are evident, one raises the lance to spear Christ's side and is identified by name here as Longinus. The other, whom we call Stephanton, whose name isn't here, lifts a sponge on a pole in one hand and the bucket of sour wine in his other. At the foot of the cross, three men cast lots for Christ's garments. You can just see them down, uh, down there. And here is the resurrection scene. And a group of women look on from a distance. 
Jesus' robe, as I said, may allude to the soldier's mocking, but here he's still wearing it. This robe, called a colobium, is present in almost all next images of the crucifixion. Here's a 7th century reliquary that's in the Vatican Museum. We see the same kind of image here. Just so you know, this is actually a pilgrimage box. Some pilgrim came and collected rocks from various parts of the Holy Land and marked them. And then the cover of the box shows you what was in the box. It's sort of like a box of chocolates. You know, if you went and got you, you know, which one is the nougat and which one is the caramel. But here we have... This is obviously from Bethlehem. This is from the Jordan where Jesus was baptized. And up there is the scene of the resurrection, or the ascension on Mount of Olives. And over here is the Pentecost scene. I'm sorry, this is, um, yeah, this is the resurrection. This is the ascension. And here is the crucifixion. Sorry. And so these little rocks would have identified something picked up from each one of those sites. Um, Christ, uh, this is a couple more here. Oh, this is the lid of the box, which I really don't ever, you don't usually get to see because it's often opened like this. And we see this uh, cross in a mandorla, which is what we call that big oval-shaped kind of halo, uh, often very dark blue, with beams coming from it, which I think is already a reference to the transfiguration. But that's another story. Here is another instance of this. This is from the Church of Santa Maria Antica in Rome. Again, Christ. Here's Longinus identified. Here's the Virgin. Here's the beloved disciple, um, and so forth. We have the scene that we just saw a little bit simplified. And here's this one. Um, let me see. This 8th century icon comes from the monastery of St. Catherine on, Ma on Mount Sinai, and it is one of the first times in which we see Christ's eyes actually closed. It also shows blood and water streaming from his wound in his right side. And this is one of the earliest depictions of that. Christ mostly loses this long purple garment by the 8th, or really by the 9th or the 10th century. And is then become, oh, this is another instance, sorry. I'm going too fast. But we'll go to this one. Um, he loses this long purple robe, and he gets this garment that we're more familiar with, something like this, which some medieval interpreters, like St. Bonaventure or Pseudo-Bonaventure, understood to be Mary's veil, which she gave him to cover his nudity on the cross. So this is when we begin to see something like a loincloth, and eventually, you know, you're going to start to see those ribbons, I mean, the kind of claws waving in the wind and creating the central space of the painting gave us some interest, in fact. While these compositions were emerging and evolving, an entirely different crucifixion scene decorated small clay and metal or glass flasks that pilgrims brought back from the Holy Land. Many contained oil that had been poured over a fragment of the true cross relic. Pilgrims brought these small souvenirs home or gave them as gifts. And thus some depict scenes associated with other places like Bethlehem, the Jordan River, or the Mount of Olives. Most of these display a cross surmounted by a bust of Christ. <clears throat> I'm not going to do this without making a mess here. Here we have the cross, a bust. See, no corpus on the cross, which is sort of interesting. Same thing here. This is actually a leafy cross, not even a plain cross. This is an interesting cross. With a bust of Christ overhead, um, and the two thieves on either side, and these are two pilgrims venerating the cross. So what we're seeing, and then down below, is an image of the empty tomb. And what we're seeing here is a, a representation of what pilgrims did when they went to the Holy Sepulchre. They venerated the cross. But we get a bust of Christ rather than a, a corpus on the cross. Sort of interesting. And probably this is a, pretty much what they remembered, that it, what looked like what they saw when they went into the Holy Sepulchre, into the Anastasis, and they saw that little... Cupola, if you've been to the Holy Sepulchre, you've seen something like that. So rather than showing his body on the cross, these show Christ as a hovering bust. Sometimes the cross is an equal arm figure set up in a tall column. Sometimes it seems to be made out of palm branches. 
Normally, it's planted in a small outcropping of rock with four running rivers, a conflation of Golgotha with Eden. Of course, Golgotha is the new Eden. And it symbolizes the center of the earth. Nearly every example includes these two small figures who kneel at the cross's base. They venerate the cross. They reach out even to touch it. Their presence in the image elides the historical story of the crucifixion with a devotional practice of real pilgrims at the site of Golgotha itself. It seems possible that this iconography reproduces an image that appeared somewhere in Constantine's Basilica of the Holy Sepulchre, perhaps the first very first monumental image of the crucifixion, but we've lost it. Unfortunately, we don't have any way of knowing that that image is gone and no surviving document, as I said, describes it. But a bit of evidence suggests that the Emperor Theodosius II presented a gold and gem-studded cross to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in exchange for some of the relics of St. Stephen. Um, it might have looked like the very gemmed cross that Constantine was supposed to have affixed to the ceiling of his palace. So maybe Theodosius saw this and wanted to give one to the Holy Sepulchre. Or the cross scepter that we see Jesus holding in those early depictions. The presence of such a cross in Jerusalem by the mid-fifth century could explain... Oh, here's another one. All the gemmed crosses we begin to see from that point on. This is a wonderful mosaic in Rome. It shows Jesus among the 12 apostles seated before the new Jerusalem. This is in Rome, so it's kind of interesting. Um, of the book of Revelation with the four beasts of Revelation behind him and rising up from the hill of Golgotha is not the old rugged cross of the Methodist hymn. It's actually a beautiful gold gemmed object. And that becomes over and over again what we're going to see. Here's even a fragment of a textile from a, a, probably from a Coptic monastery in Egypt. And this is a famous cross in the Vatican treasury, or at St. Peter's treasury in Rome, <laughs> given to the Pope and the people of Rome from the Emperor Justin II. It has a fragment of the true cross in its center and covered with gems. <laughs> What I think is happening here is this is not just the cross of crucifixion. This is a cross that refers to the sign of Jesus' second coming. The relevant text here is Matthew 24, 30, which describes that after the suffering is over, the sun and moon are extinguished and the stars will fall from heaven. And here we have all the stars falling. And the, and the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. I think the gem cross is actually a reference to this, to the end time, not to the, not to the middle of the story. So, if this is the sign and the emblem of the, of the divine Savior coming again to gather the elect from earth, from one end of heaven to the other, then we can see this coming out of the night sky. In, this is a church in, in, in Classe, near Ravenna, coming out of the night sky into the sanctuary and predicting the, the judgment. Put these together. A 7th century Roman mosaic depicts, inserted into a church that was actually built to look like the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem and is named Saint, for St. Stephen, Produ reproduces an image that may have appeared in the apse of the Basilica in Jerusalem. Like these pilgrims amply, Christ's bust ho hovers over the cross, but here the cross is gold and covered with precious gems, just like the ones we saw. Now, eventually, but not a lot earlier than the 12th century, Christ begins to show evidence of his physical suffering and his anguish, and Mary and the beloved disciple begin to express their grief. Earlier, you often see the Virgin and the beloved disciple fairly stoically and piously standing by, but not weeping, not looking sad. It's at this point we begin to see crucifixes that are so familiar to Catholics. The suffering Christ with a sagging body, bleeding wounds, and a facial expression of agony. 
Let me keep it there. It might surprise you to learn that this was controversial when it first appeared. There were theologians that resisted showing a dead or dying Christ on the cross because it seemed to undermine the narrative of triumph. The, the earlier narrative of salvation was Jesus as a victor over death and the devil. And this neglects perhaps also the empty tomb of Easter morning. In the East, Byzantine theologians continued to uphold the image of Christ on the cross as affirming his victory over death. In the West, however, the focus begins to be on the reconciling work of Christ's sacrifice, and so the iconography starts to emphasize his suffering. And this is a text for an example you may know from St. Anselm. So much as I can, and so this would be dated, oh goodness, around 1100. So much as I can, though not as much as I ought, I am mindful of your passion, your buffeting, your scourging, your cross, your wounds, how you were slain for me, how prepared for burial and buried. Oh, why, oh, my soul, were you not there to be pierced by a sword of bitter sorrow when you could not be bare the piercing of the side of your Savior? And he goes on, and this is the development of a new kind of piety, a piety that focuses on the suffering of Christ compassionately, attending to the pain and the agony. The pious faithful were encouraged to meditate on Christ's physical pain, not in order to feel guilty, but to cultivate a sense of profound love and compassion for Christ and for all who suffer in this life. God, fully human, engages human torment, mockery, injustice, and desertion. These images reflect the expectation that those who take up their own crosses and follow him may experience, as it did for him, persecution, rejection, suffering, and grief. And for those who are already suffering, it became a symbol of God's solidarity with their pain. Whoop, I did this again. I am such a dope at this. Okay. A few images to show you that dating, as you see the development here, this beautiful ivory. And notice here, the Virgin is already not just swooning in, 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 in grief, but she's, oh, she's completely collapsed. Um, and the angels are yeah, tormented and so forth. But I bring you this one. This is, of course, very familiar to many of you. This is the Eisenheim, center of the Eisenheim altarpiece, a very complicated object with many openings. But this is the crucifixion panel in which we see Christ wounded and bleeding and agony. We see the uh, Magdalene with her, you know, in passion with her hands outstretched. The Virgin is swooning, being caught by the beloved disciple. And over here is the, is the Baptist pointing, saying, he must increase and I must decrease. This image is often shocking to people who haven't seen it, and they think it's very ugly. <laughs> this is a response to it I've often experienced. But if you tell them that this was designed for a hospital in which people who looked upon this were already suffering in agony with wounds on their bodies like this, because they had something that was called St. Um, Anthony's disease. It was a disease that broke, the skin broke out and, and wounds and, and open sores, and they were dying. This was a disease that was fatal. This was an important image for them. And I bring you one more, just so you can kind of see what I'm after, is this one. So while the living Christ, reigning from the cross, or the gem-studied and golden crosses clearly point to Christ's glorious victory rather than his humiliating death, and both of these are true. I'm not saying one is better than the other. Another type of cross, by the way, alludes to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Trees of life crosses reflect an ancient Christian tradition that links the two trees of paradise with the cross. One of these trees was the source of life, the other implicated in the sin that brought death into the world. 
According to hymns and legends that can, we can date from the 4th century to the Middle Ages, the, wound, the wood of, Christ, of the cross takes its origin from that Edenic tree of, of life, the one that was Adam and Eve's tree of life, and so brings the story of salvation full circle. And that could be another lecture, but I'm not going to do that tonight. Christ here, then, is the new Adam. The cross is the new tree, the source of life, and the renewal of creation. And here's a text just to sort of give you another wonderful text um, from Venetius Fortunatus. Just sort of look at that for a minute. This tree of all trees it has no peer. It's a, such a tree, no forest brought forth such blossom, leaf, and bud. Sweet is the wood which sweet nails its, its sweet burden undergoes. Bend your branches, tree so lofty, loose your tight-knit inner core. Let that stiffness grow more supple which your native birth imposed, that you may stretch forth the limbs of heaven's king from gentle trunk. And this, I know, is somebody's favorite here. This is a very beautiful mosaic apse from San Clemente in Rome, dated to the early 12th century, in which the cross exists within a beautiful uh, scene of curling acanthus leaves, and it's bursting forth out of, a, uh, out of, out of water, uh, out of streams where deer are coming to drink, and of course it has the body of Christ upon it. And the text... One of the texts is associated with this, and you can sort of see it, is we will liken the church of Christ to this vine, which the law makes wither, but the cross makes verdant. <coughs> so, in conclusion, the virtual absence of crosses and crucifixion images in the first four centuries may strike us as puzzling, considering their centrality in Christian teaching and art later. Explanation for their absence, run the gamut from a proposal that early Christians were, did not regard Christ's death as essentially salvific, to a lingering shame about the manner of that death, to concerns about publicly displaying an image that outsiders would disrespect or misunderstand. I mean, somebody in class yesterday suggested about what it would be like to wear an electric chair around your neck. Yet those images eventually emerged, and, they, and when they did, they reflected and shaped our theological discourse. Popular devotion, ritual practices, and visionary experiences. The empty cross comes first, frequently joined with the Christogram as a symbol of victory. Although initially associated with an emperor's military victory, it soon came to signify the believer's hope in the final resurrection from death. The first surviving Elise crucifixion scenes were so significantly different in appearance, material, and form that it is difficult to say what they meant to those who made or saw them. By the sixth century, crucifixion scenes began to be more consistent in the way they depicted the events on Golgotha. But even these began to re be replaced by other types, shifting from an emphasis on Christ's glorious victory over death to his, his human participation in human suffering. Meanwhile, glorious gem crosses and verdant tree of life crosses enriched the repertoire in distinctive ways, expanded the possibilities and potentialities of the Holy Cross as a rich and incredibly complicated Christian symbol. Thank you. A couple of questions? Yeah, happy for questions. We, we have time for a few questions, so um, who has one? Is there any sense that the robe, robe Christ that's being popular for a while was somehow supposed to evoke priestly vestments or things like that? I think it actually evokes royalty, more than anything. Um, it's about this time that the emperor stopped wearing a white robe and began to wear only purple, especially with the golden stripes. Yeah, so he's a king. Um, in, in many of the French 
uh, images quite late. You'll still see the crucified Christ wearing a crown. Yeah. Other question? I don't know if this is at all relevant, but I'm the king of irrelevance. So, uh, when you first started speaking, uh, and we started talking about uh, the uh, the basilica in, in Jerusalem, I'm uh, struck by the fact that if you talk to an Orthodox Christian, he will talk about the Church of the Resurrection, whereas Latin Rite Christians, Catholics, talk about the Holy Sepulcher. And I wonder if that ties into any of the emphases that you've been talking about. Um, what we think Constantine built first was what we call the rotunda. <coughs> so it's a, actually, it's a very interesting complex. What we see today doesn't help us to understand the complexity of that original building. So there's a big basilica that was built for, for <coughs> congregational you know, worship. And then there was the shrine, which was the round, eventually, not initially, but eventually domed space that was over the tomb. And between these two structures was an open courtyard, and there was a small shrine of the place of the cross. So today, when you go to the Holy Sepulchre, you see it all at once, kind of. It's all one big thing. But it was actually sort of three different spaces. And I think that's why it may depend on your th theology. You know, what are you going to emphasize, the resurrection or the crucifixion? Um, and it, it, that's a very interesting question in terms of how people perceive that space. Is it, is the, the difference in, in, in iconographic uh, uh, work in, in an Orthodox church versus what, what you find in the Yeah, and I, the Orthodox church does not de-emphasize the crucifixion. I wouldn't no. want it to be, that to be communicated at all. Now, in fact, on Good Friday, they carry a beautiful embroidered um, epitaphion, as they call it, you know, to, to show that. So it's, but I do think it's kind of interesting if you go to the Holy Sepulchre to decide who's lining up to go into the empty tomb and who's lining up to go to Golgotha. You know, maybe you're doing both, right? Yeah. It sounds to me as if Professor Jensen has about enough voice left for one more, <laughs> one more question. So I noticed that uh, one of the main, we see a lot of changes start to form around the 5th and 6th century. I'm wondering if, if the fall of Rome occurred somewhere in the late 4th century. I'm wondering if that might be like a major factor to like changing depictions of Christ's suffering and the You know, people want to associate all these, the, the suffering doesn't happen around the 5th century. It happens around the 12th. Mm -hmm. So it's really late and it's really Western. It's more Western medieval than anything. And, and I think people want to say, oh, it has to do with the Black Plague, or this war, or that war. You know, we've always had plagues and wars. <laughs> I mean, plagues and wars were not unique in the 12th century. It was the first time they happened. I think it has to do more, I would say, with, with the imaginative piety that begins with someone like Bernard de Clermont and continues through St. Francis, in which one wants to imagine all the stories uh, and, and feel them and experience them. And when that, that's, a, that's a real devotional change at that time, and I think that's part of the answer, really. Let's, let's thank our speaker for <laughs>